Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning in your house with your people, and we are here to hear your word, to sing to you, to praise you, to pray to you, to confess our faith together to you. Lord, we pray that uh, you would join us this morning, as you promised to do, and that you would work in us, and that you would work through your word, through your spirit. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're in Hebrews chapter 13 this morning, so go ahead and turn there with me, Hebrews 13. We're almost, almost toward the end here of the book of Hebrews, so we're going to be finishing our Hebrews series in not too long, just a couple more weeks, I think, maybe, maybe two more or so. We are picking up where we left off last week. Um, we have finished chapter 12, but we're going to backtrack just a hair, and we're going to start this morning with Hebrews 12, verse 28. And then we're going to continue through in through chapter 13, verse 6. And just by way of reminder, before I read the text, just remember that uh, Hebrews 12 was um, in part of the section on the implications of Christ's superiority for the life of the believer. That is like, in light of all this doctrine, now how do we live? How, how does this apply to us? How should we think about this with regard to our life? And so we saw last week that the author of Hebrews in verses 18 and following, his point there was to say that because of everything that Christ has done, because he's fulfilled everything in the Old Testament, the priesthood, the temple, the sacrifices, and all that business, now, because he's done that, we have, as those who trust in Christ, an unshakable kingdom. And in verse 22, he had called that kingdom the New Jerusalem. And then he uses all of this Old Testament language about Israel to describe the realities that the church has. And so we saw in that passage then that all of these Old Testament prophecies about Israel and about this new Jerusalem and all this business, all of that is being fulfilled in the church. And so we have that now. We have this new Jerusalem now because we have entered into the spiritual city of God as his church but we are also awaiting the full and final consummation of those promises because we're still waiting for the new heavens and the new earth. And so we saw that, that already and that not yet aspect last week to this new Jerusalem that the author of Hebrews calls an unshakable kingdom. All right. So that's basically where we ended last week. And I didn't get to cover everything I wanted to about the end of chapter 12. So we're going to pick up there with verse 28. And uh, let me start there reading, and we'll go through chapter 13, verse 6. So beginning with 12, 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. 
I will not fear. What can man do to me? So in this passage, uh, you can see there are verses 28 and 29 ends chapter 12, and then we begin a new chapter. And uh, there's nothing wrong with, you know, beginning new chapters in biblical books. That kind of thing is helpful for us to kind of, you know, get the big picture of what's going on, helps kind of break up the text for us. Uh, But remember that in the originals, there are no chapter divisions. So chapter 12, verse 29, and chapter 13, verse 1 is flows seamlessly. There's no division. And so that's the way we really want to think about this here. Because what the author of Hebrews is doing in this whole passage from verse 28 of chapter 12 all the way now through into chapter 13 is he's talking about the same thing. He's talking about the same stuff. He's talking about worship. But he's talking about worship in two different respects. At the very end of chapter 12, here he's talking about what we call corporate worship. That's worship as the church, as we come together as God's people in his house to worship him. But then at the beginning of chapter 13, he's talking about another aspect of worship. And that kind of worship we call life worship, or worship in all of life. Because there's a very real sense in which we as Christians are always worshiping God. We are glorifying God all the time, no matter what we are doing. And so we worship him in everything that we do. But that doesn't mean that that kind of worship is precisely identified with corporate worship. There's a difference. And the author of Hebrews is talking about both kinds of worship here in this passage. And we're going to see that, how he does that here. So firstly, at the very end of chapter 12, which is where we ended last week, here our author is talking about corporate worship. And this is what he says, right? He starts out verse 28 by saying, Therefore... Remember, we talk about that word a lot because the word therefore means in light of everything that I just said. Now here's the implication. And what did he just say? Well, what he just said was you have an unshakable kingdom in Christ. That was the gist of chapter 12. Now here he says, therefore, what what does that mean for you? Number one, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We talked about that last week. But now I want to zero in here on this next part. He says here, the second response that we should have to recognizing this full, the full dimensions of the person and work of Christ, this response we should have is this. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. So there you can see now what our author is saying is that in light of all of this theology, all of this teaching about Christ that we've been talking about, what's the response of the believer? The response of the believer is to worship. And we talked about this briefly last week, right? That without doctrine, we have no reason to worship. Without doctrine, there is no reason to worship. We have no motivation. We have no fuel for worshiping if we don't understand the teaching of Scripture. Doctrine is not something that's just pure knowledge. It can be. right? It can be. Sometimes knowledge puffs up. That certainly can happen. But biblically speaking, the way that knowledge should work for the Christian is that knowledge should drive us to worship God. 
The doctrine of God should drive us to the worship of God. The doctrine of Christ should drive us to the worship of Christ, etc., right? Because when we truly understand what Christ has done for us, I mean, what other response is there but to say, oh, thank you, Christ. Thank you, oh my God. To come and to worship before the throne. If we understand, we will be drawn to worship. Because at that point, what has been in our mind has filtered down into our heart. Because the heart cannot exalt what the mind does not accept. We need both of those things working in tandem. Doctrine leads to worship. And so we talked about that last week. But notice what he says. He doesn't just say, let us offer to God worship. He says here, let us offer to God acceptable worship. Now, your, um, your Bible, your translation that you have, might say something like acceptable service. Right? Sometimes the word worship is translated as service. And that's because the Greek word behind these English translations can be used to talk about corporate worship, where the people of God come together at the temple or the synagogue or something. Or it can be used to describe generally the life of the people of God. And that's why this word can be used to talk about, as we said before, corporate worship or worship in all of life. The word has both meanings. And the author of Hebrews is using that word specifically here because he's getting ready to talk about worship in all of life. But in order to talk about that in chapter 13, he's first here at the end of 12 talking about corporate worship because there is a distinction. And here in verse 28, he says, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. And that little phrase, our God is a consuming fire, he's not just giving us a, a, you know, a cute lyric from some song or something. But what he's doing is he is alluding to Leviticus chapter 10, where the sons of Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu came, they took their censers, and they offered to God unauthorized fire. Right? Now, Nadab and Abihu, they were priests to Yahweh. They were taught very specifically what they were supposed to do to worship God. They were punished by God because they were innovators. They did not follow God's law. They decided that they could do it better. And so they created this new worship ceremony. And you know what God did is he sent fire down upon them and it consumed them. That's the very words of Leviticus 10. It consumed them. And so what the author of Hebrews is doing here is he's alluding to that event. And he's saying, let's not be like Nadab and Abihu and offer unacceptable worship. We are going to offer acceptable worship. That is, worship that corresponds with what God wants. You see, as soon as our author starts talking about acceptable worship, we know right away that there must be this other category called unacceptable worship. Right? And here he's alluding to a very instance where Nadab and Abihu came to God with unacceptable worship. Why? Because they innovated. They came up with new stuff. They didn't think what God provided, what God commanded was good enough. They were worship innovators. And God rained fire from heaven down on them. And so the author of Hebrews calls us, says, in light of the doctrine of Christ, let us offer acceptable worship. And scripture teaches elsewhere that acceptable worship is worship 
that corresponds with the direct commands of Scripture. We don't get to make up whatever things we feel like doing in worship. You know, that's the message that you often hear today, isn't it? The message is, you know, if I come to a Sunday service, the point of the service is about me. It's what I like, what I want, what my, whatever helps me, whatever feeds my emotional state. And the problem is that's exactly backwards. The point of worship is not to come so that we can be fed. Now, we are fed in worship. I hope we're fed in worship. I hope we are fed. I hope that we receive God's blessing. And, of course, we do receive God's blessing. But that's not the purpose of worship. The purpose of worship is not to give something to me. The purpose of worship is to praise God. And what's amazing is that Scripture teaches when we come to God and when we bless Him, He just turns right around and He pours that blessing back on us. Because he's a gracious, good God. But we should not come to worship to be blessed. We come to worship to bless God. And therefore, acceptable worship is not whatever we feel worship should be. Acceptable worship is what God says worship should be. What he has said in his word. And so when we design worship, right, we do it according to scripture. We sing. We hear the preaching of the word. We pray. We confess our faith. We read the scriptures, right? All of these things are directly commanded in scripture. And so we do those things. We're not just deciding what things we would like to do. We're saying, what does God want us to do? Because worship is about him, not about us. Does God want our heart? Does he, does he want us to enjoy worship? Of course he does. But he wants our worship to be acceptable to him, what he has commanded. And so we do that. So let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and let us offer to God acceptable worship. And then there's another little piece here. He says, with reverence and awe. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. R.C. Sproul on the radio the other day, he uh, made a very interesting statement. He said, he said, you don't, Come to church like you go to the beach. You don't come to church like you go to the beach. And the idea there is that if we really understand what we're doing when we come to worship in God's house, we cannot approach it with a cavalier attitude. When we understand who this God is who made the heavens and the earth, who controls all things, and we step into his house and we dare approach his throne. We understand that, God. We realize we're not out for a weekend on the beach. We are entering into the presence of a holy throne room. And that ought to, that knowledge of God, of his majesty, of his holiness, that ought to drive us to reverence and awe. When Isaiah walked into the throne room of God when his train filled the temple... Isaiah, he didn't kick back on his sandals and sit back and relax. He fell on his face and wept. That's the kind of reverence and awe. And I'm not saying every time we come to church we should fall on the ground and weep, okay? But the point is, do we have this sense? Do we have this sense of reverence and awe? If we don't, we're probably not thinking about who God is. Probably not thinking about what we're doing. 
Now, there are things that we can do to help us with our reverence and awe, to help us with those things, you know, the clothing that we wear, the building that we worship in, the style of worship, the content of the worship. Those things can aid us in in helping produce a sense of awe. Let me tell you something. When I was in Israel and I was going to all the great cathedrals of the Roman Catholic Church, because they build all these massive cathedrals on these holy sites. Man, Roman Catholics, they have a lot of things wrong, right? We know that. They have a lot of things wrong theologically. But one thing that they do do really well, one thing that they've really cornered the market on is creating sanctuaries that just scream reverence and awe. I walk into one of those things on a Tuesday afternoon with a tour guide and 25 people. I don't care if the tour guide is Jewish and I don't care what's going on around me. All of a sudden, I want to worship because that sanctuary was creating that atmosphere. And I'm not saying we have to build a cathedral, but my point is there are things we can do to help encourage a sense, a biblical sense of reverence and awe in our worship. But the point is not the externals right? because we can have of this sense of reverence and awe in our worship without any of those things if our heart is in the right place. And what most matters is not the building we're in or the clothes we're wearing, but what most matters is that we understand who God is. And that is what we need in our worship. So, here's what the author of Hebrews says about corporate worship. It needs to be acceptable. It needs to be in accordance with the things that God has commanded. And it needs to be done with a holy reverence and awe. Because our God is a holy God who consumes evil. So that is corporate worship. That, and remember, this is our response to the work of Christ giving us an unshakable kingdom. Is we worship God in this way. Praise God. We get to do that this morning. But there's a second piece here. And that's beginning in chapter 13 verse 1. And here in this section, now we get to learn not just about corporate worship, but we get to learn about the other aspect of worship, the other kind of worship, and that's worship in all of life. And here's what he says about worship in all of life. He says, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. So notice here that the author of Hebrews goes right from corporate worship. Now he's talking about what is the Christian life? What are things that Christians need to pursue? Now, worship in all of life, that whole category shows up in other places in Scripture. The Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 12. Specifically in verses 1 and 2, when Paul calls the believer's good works acceptable sacrifices. And he calls us to present our bodies as living sacrifices to God. And see, there Paul is grabbing worship language from the Old Testament. And he is taking that worship language and he is applying it not specifically to corporate worship, 
He does that other places. But in Romans 12, he's taking that Old Testament worship language and he's applying it to the daily life of the believer. So worship in all of life is a legitimate biblical category because everything that we do in our life is, in a certain sense, worship because we are glorifying God in all the things that we do. This summer, I... uh, Normally during the school year, I'm the teaching assistant for our theology professor at RTS. But this summer, I was pulled away from that to be the teaching assistant for our Old Testament professor because he's teaching Hebrew all summer. And so we're in class from you know, all morning, Monday through Friday. And then during the early mornings and the afternoons, I'm lecturing and helping teach students on the Hebrew Bible and stuff. And it's just really fun. But one of the things that I keep telling the students over and over again is we got like 35 or 40 of them in the whole class. And I say, every time you're, you come to class and you're learning your paradigms, you're learning your vocabulary, we're working through translations and we're learning this and learning that. This is worship. This is your opportunity here to worship God by rendering acceptable service to Him. You're worshiping God as you do this. God has called you to this. You're preparing for your congregation. Worship God today when you do this. Because you're going to do it to the glory of God. So that's a worship in all of life kind of category. Being called to do what God has called us to do. And so as Christians in general, here are things that we are called to do. 13 verse 1, first thing he says is we're called to brotherly love. Because we're called to, sounds cliche, but it's true because it's in the Bible, love one another. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now, I'm not going to comment on exactly how that passage might apply today. You know, are angels actually taking on human form and coming house to house and testing us or something? I have no idea. But the point that the author of Hebrews is doing here is he's alluding to the story of Abraham. When Abraham was entertaining the angels of the Lord who came to him to tell Abraham what was going to happen. You can see, the author of Hebrews knows his Old Testament. He's alluding to lots of passages here and there. That's the passage he has in mind here. And you remember what Abraham did for these angels, right? He went, he slaughtered animals, and he prepared cakes and food and all this. He was showing hospitality. That kind of virtue, hospitality, was very, very important in the ancient world, especially in the ancient Near East where Abraham was living in that time. And so the author of Hebrews says, that's a good thing. Love one another. Show hospitality, even to strangers. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. So notice there, all of that that he's talking about, all of this is just loving one another, remembering those who are persecuted, praying for those who are going through difficult times. And if this isn't an accurate description of what the body of Christ, what the church ought to be, then I don't know what is. This same stuff is repeated all over the Bible. Paul goes into this in numerous places. Verse 4, now we learn a little something else. So verses 1 through 3 was all about brotherly love and treating one another well and and those sorts of things. Now in verse 4, we have another thing that Christians do as they worship in all of life. They hold marriage in honor among all. And they keep the marriage bed undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. 
I have read articles in journals or newspapers just you know on my phone that pop up here and there where people in the secular world, the pop culture, will say that Christians have turned marriage into an idol or that they have turned family into an idol. And those sorts of people, usually what they're trying to do is they're trying to say that what the, the big problem with the world today is that we need to get rid of the family, is that we need to get rid of marriage. We don't need those things. Those are archaic institutions. And my response to that is just to think, I don't know, making an idol out of marriage, no, I don't think so. I think we're just holding it in high regard because that's what the Bible tells us to do. We are to hold marriage in high regard. Why? Because marriage is the bedrock of civilization. Marriage is the way. Family is the way that God normally expands his kingdom. You remember we talked about that in our sacrament series and we were talking about the doctrine of baptism. One of the reasons why it's so important to recognize that the children of believers are part of the church is because God normally works through families. Parents raising their children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord and then sending them off to go and do good work for the kingdom. That is how God expands his kingdom. Yes, there are awakenings. Yes, there are revivals and kind of big explosions of Christianity at various points in history. But those glamorous headlines shouldn't cloud our ability to see that God loves to work through normal, everyday means. And so marriage should be held in held in honor by all. And because that's the case, he says, let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Now notice there that there are two ways that you can defile the marriage bed. You can do it by adultery. Breaking marriage vows. Whatever that, however you apply that, you can do it by adultery. But then secondly, he has this other category called sexual immorality, which is any kind of sexual activity before or after marriage that's not with your spouse. So when I hear people say the Bible never condemns premarital sex, well, people who say that are usually repeating internet headlines and they're not actually reading their Bibles. And the reason why we care about those things, why the Bible cares about those things, is not because we like to ruin people's fun. It's not because we like to just be old-fashioned. It's because marriage needs to be honored. Marriage needs to be honored among all. And then finally here, as we sort of bring this to a close, verse 5, last thing he says about worship in all of life for today, as he says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Keep your life free from the love of money. That is one of the most subtle things that, that people struggle with. Right? Because it's very, very difficult to define. It's easy to say that person committed adultery, right? Because if you know about it, you know it's a pretty, pretty significant line in the sand. 
But when you say, don't be a lover of money, that's, that's a pretty gray area to figure out exactly who falls under that category or if I fall under that category, right? It's a very difficult one. So I can't stand up here and say, here's how you know if you're a lover of money. But, but what I can say is the scripture says, if you are a lover of money, then these promises that he quotes here at the end, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? If you're a lover of money, it means you're not trusting in these promises. Because notice what he says. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content. Why? Because the Lord has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And you see what the author of Hebrews is saying there? He's saying, if you are trusting in your wealth, if the pursuit of your life is to gain as much wealth as you possibly can, if you're never content with what you have, then you're probably not trusting in the promises of God that he will provide for you, that he will bring what you need, that he will make sure that you are taken care of because he will never leave you nor forsake you. This, this passage here that the author of Hebrews quotes, you can see it's in quotes here at the end of verse 5. I will never leave you nor forsake you. That phrase comes from Joshua chapter 1. You remember Joshua at that point in the context of the narrative is he is taking over the leadership of Israel as the covenant mediator. He is taking over for Moses. And Joshua is about to lead the people of Israel into the land of Canaan. And God comes to Joshua and he says, Joshua... Be strong and courageous. I am the Lord your God. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And you think about it, yourself in Joshua's position. He's about to lead this gang of desert travelers into a, a nation, into the land of Canaan, and wipe out all of those giant people. Joshua would be afraid. He'd be afraid, humanly speaking, that God would not provide. But God said, no, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This is, in a sense, an argument from the greater to the lesser. Because the author of Hebrews is saying, if God would do all of that for Joshua, and you know he did, because you know, you've read that Bible, you know that account, you know that Joshua wins through God's help. If God does all of that great things for Joshua, then how could he not do these little things for you by making sure that you're provided for enough so that you don't have to obsess about money? You see that point that he's making there? Verse 6, So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And that last piece there, as we close, just note that he is quoting from Psalm 118. And Psalm 118 is all about the steadfast love of the Lord. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. That line is repeated over and over and over again in that psalm. And that Hebrew word, steadfast love, means God's faithfulness to his people. His faithfulness to his covenant people. The Lord is our helper. What shall we fear? What can man do to us? So as we worship, we both worship corporately according to the principles of Scripture with reverence and awe. 
And simultaneously, not only do we worship corporately like we're going to do this morning, but we worship in all of life. We love one another. We hold marriage in high regard. And we trust the Lord to provide for us. That is how we worship in our life. Let's pray. Lord God, we rejoice this morning in your word, and we rejoice that the author of Hebrews gives us such comfort here at the end today. Lord, we, I don't know what all of us are going through, but Lord, you do. And you know that when we have questions about where provision will come from, or, or how we will do the things you've called us to do, or how we will make it, Lord, I pray that you would give us all strength and wisdom to see that you always provide for your people will always take care of us. So Lord, we pray that that you would fill our hearts with this great knowledge and that it would motivate us both to worship you corporately this morning and that we would also be motivated to worship you in our life this week. And so we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.